the film that I have coming out now, Tijuana Jackson, Purpose Over Prison, I actually wrote, directed, raised the money, starred in, and edited that film. And that was like my film school. And so it's not really like, and I was reluctant to all of it. I, I didn't want to write it. I didn't want to direct it. I didn't think I would have to raise the money for it. And I damn sure wasn't planning on editing it, but... <laughs> the, you know, my producers were like, we would try to hire writers and my producers would be like, really, dude, I don't think that there's a chance that anyone's going to write this with the voice that you have. OK, cool. I'll write it. Started looking for directors and they were like, seriously, dude. And before you know it, I was directing it. And the editor that I, I had planned on hiring, she ended up booking a really nice gig. And so she wasn't available. And so as a result, I ended up having to edit it myself. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about the director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right, what's up, people? This is Pete Chapman welcoming you to the Let's Shoot podcast. And we have arrived somehow at episode eight. Today, we are welcoming Mr. Romney Malco. I'm sure a lot of you were, um, were introduced to him in The 40-Year-Old Virgin, but you're going to discover today that his career began quite some time before that as a rapper, uh, as a writer of a rap that uh, you'll be very familiar with from a Paula Abdul song, uh, as a writer on jingles, and uh, many things before transitioning into film and television. Romney's got a feature film coming out on Friday called Tijuana Jackson, Purpose Over Prison, that he wrote, directed, produced, starred in, edited. He created this character back in 1999, and it's a beautiful thing to talk to somebody who is, uh, wearing all the hats possible in the requirement of getting their passion and their vision out to the world. I had the pleasure of working with Romney on episode 212 of A Million Little Things, which shot last October, November up in Vancouver. And uh, it was a really, really good episode. We had a lot of uh, good vibes on that set. We have a interesting story that we'll share in this episode about uh, really just the, the importance of blocking and a moment where he uh, wanted to change the blocking and fought for a specific way to develop a beat within a scene uh, with BJ Britt and Jerry Ferrara. And uh, I kind of knew after that moment that if I had a podcast, I wanted to interview him. So I reached out and I was not surprised uh, that he said yes, because I knew he was a, a good dude and uh, a, good, a good person to talk to about these things. So I hope you all uh, enjoy this interview with Romney Malco, and I will check you out on the other side of it. Roll sound. Speed. The interview. Take one. Excellent. Welcome to the podcast, brother. Um, my first question for you is, uh, tell me about RMG and the college boys. <laughs> wow, you went back. You must have a producer on your team. Um, uh, I, you know, I was uh, an aspiring rapper from like the age of seven when I first heard Rapper's Delight. But I didn't really start doing it out in public until I moved to Texas. And prior to it, I didn't really have a voice or an identity in uh, Texas. And uh, I might have been about 14 years old. And you, I got this acceptance from rapping in public. And people were like, oh, man, have you heard Junior rap? Oh, my God. And in Texas, it just seemed futuristic. I was coming from right. New York. I had stopped off in Trinidad, and then I had moved to uh, Baytown, Texas. And, you know, 
the next thing you know, I had a whole posse of rappers. They were coming out the woodworks, and we ended up forming a group called RMG, which started out as Rap Masters of the Galaxy, which actually made sense for the time. But we right. quickly <laughs> learned that that was corny, and we used it for our last names, which was Regis, Malco, and Guidry. There you go. So you moved from Brooklyn, and you and you brought the Brooklyn flavor to Texas, and it was just like... Yeah, kind of. Kind of. But I, I was living in Trinidad prior to moving to Texas. And so, you know, Brooklyn got that whole Caribbean. And we and, and we just showed up and it was rough because, you know, at the time, people weren't very accepting of different people. You know, you know what I mean? Our, right. our community wasn't as, as 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 accepting of Caribbean culture as it is now. And so what what was what was that was that the main difference like just the acceptance and 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 probably uh lack of I'm I'm assuming all this right now too like like a lack of diversity when you moved to Texas or like what was the big like change for you culturally Um yeah, the the cultural change of moving to Texas was really like how uh divided it was it was very bizarre to see white kids eat at one table in in school I'm talking, I'm talking junior high. There was, I, I, I've actually, so if you don't know, my dad is Trinidadian um, by way of Venezuela. So he's Venezuelan and Trinidadian. And my, and my mom is Trinidadian by way of, uh, by way of West Africa, but born and raised in Trinidad, like, you know, four, three, four generations. And so what really stood out to me being someone who had gone to school in New York and gone to school in Trinidad was like getting to Texas junior high school and seeing, or yeah, just, yeah, my eighth grade year and seeing white kids have one table, black kids have one table, Mexican kids have one table, and then Asian kids have, in the cafeteria was the most bizarre thing to me. And I would get flack every time I sat at a different table. So when I was sitting at table with white kids, they'd be like, why don't you go sit with your nigger friends? But when mm. I was sitting at a, Mex a table with Mexican folks, you know, somebody would be like, why are you sitting over there with all the Mexicans? You couldn't win. You, and and right. when I sat at the, Afri at, at the black American table, I wasn't black enough. And um, I think that not having that acceptance kind of forced me into accepting my own identity. You know, it was like, you couldn't win or lose. And, and, and I think that a lot of it just had a lot to do with when you are oppressed, that's what you do. You, you right. oppress, you know, uh, with, within the household, within your social circles, within your work constructs, you know. Yeah. We'll come back to this later. But do you think, you know, because I was I was doing my research as I need to. And I was like, man, this brother has written, directed, DP'd, you know, like. Um, I, I'm sure you probably edited something that I don't know about. I know you have all the Instagram videos that you keep popping, but like, do you think that that kind of like I can fit in anywhere has driven you creatively to hop from music to film to TV? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, um, I, the film that I have coming out now, Tijuana Jackson, Purpose Over Prison, I actually wrote, directed, raised the money, starred in, and edited that film. And that was like my film school. And so it's not really like, and I was reluctant to all of it. I, I didn't want to write it. I didn't want to direct it. I didn't think I would have to raise the money for it. And I damn sure wasn't planning on editing it, but... <laughs> The, you know, my producers were like, we would try to hire writers and my producers would be like, really, dude, I don't think that there's a chance that anyone's going to write this with the voice that you have. OK, cool. I'll write it. Started looking for directors and they were like, seriously, dude. And before you know it, I was directing it. And the editor that I, I had planned on hiring, she ended up booking a really nice gig. And so she wasn't available. She Let me ask, were you going to was it going to be Shannon? It was Shannon. Shannon, okay. right at that time, she had booked Insecure. Uh-huh. I worked so with her, her on Grownish. She's dope. Yes. I, I love that girl. Yeah. Um, and so, as a result, I ended up having to edit it myself, but I got a lot of notes from Shannon. Okay. And that's that's Shannon Baker Davis for people listening. And, and I think she just, uh, I feel like she just cut Black AF 
uh, yeah. for on, on Netflix with, with Kenya. Um, she has. So that's dope, man. It's like, you know, I, it's funny hearing the, the origin story because I even remember uh, when I did a million little things with y'all, I think somebody, maybe Rode told me like, you were the only one who knew how to ice skate. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. yo, that's that's funny, man. Cause that would, you would have been the last person that most folks would think had 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 uh, balance on the skates, you know? Do, when we show up to the hockey practice, for us, they, they have to prepare us. They, we kept trying to explain that I, I, I knew how to skate <laughs> and they couldn't, they just couldn't get it in. So literally another black stuntman had to say to them, no, no, Romney's been skating since, you know, uh, right, right. you know, Romney's been skating for 15 years. They're like, oh, yes, yes. okay, okay, all right, okay. So then they started training the other dudes. <laughs> That's yeah. Fine, yeah, I had to so, learn it for the Love Guru with Mike Myers when I was doing the Mike Myers movie. Uh, back uh, uh, 15 years ago, I did a movie called The Love Guru in Toronto. And the character that I played was a professional uh, uh, hockey skater, um, hockey, you know, professional hockey player. So I had to learn how to skate. And so I just really devoted myself to it. I went at, went at it with reckless abandon. It was a good lesson because it taught me that like you can't be afraid to fall down. And you have to go at it with reckless abandon if you truly want to learn. And that's kind of what I do everything like now. Try to just go at things with reckless abandon. That's the only way. When you're developing new skills and, you know, and, and you're this far along in life, it's sometimes very difficult to carve those new neural, those, those new pathways, you know, get your neuron synapses to actually work through unfamiliar path, pathways and like, that the only way I can think of it is to kind of not allow myself to think and like seriously reckless abandon. Yeah, you just try it. There's no failing. Yeah. What what I I'm I'm gonna imagine that you said your mom is uh was Trinidadian via uh by way of West Africa. Yeah. And then your father uh via Venezuela. I'm assuming there was a lot of oral tradition and good stories like what was the the first story that had an impact on you? I think one of the first stories that had an impact on me was that my great-grandmother was one of the first women to drive in Trinidad and Tobago. She was a playwright. She was a midwife and a landlord. She did it all. And she was like just very respected and very well off and very wise. And she was also like, uh, and she was Jewish at that. And I was like, hearing about her and her philosophies and her life was like very inspiring because it seemed so different from the life that we had been living, you know? So it, right, it made right. me feel, it made me feel connected to someone because I had similar aspirations. Right. And so did that, uh, did that ever play in driving you toward you know, telling stories in music or seeking stories in, in TV and film, or was it just kind of like... Uh, no, because I didn't really hear about it until afterwards. It wasn't until later on in the game where something interesting where it's like when I actually started becoming more successful in film, um, when I... Oh, actually in music and then film, that my... Um, uh, my mom started reminding me of these things. And the way that it even came up was, I had heard this stuff when I was younger, but the way it came up was we came across my grandmother's uh, driver's license, my great-grandmother's driver's license. And then the stories in there, you know what? You're so much like your great-grandmother. And then we started going down the whole thing, and I then the stories started coming back. But I think that just knowing that it was something that was happening or had happened within my family probably gave me a little added confidence. And mm -hmm. also just being someone who grew up in a household where my family encouraged me uh, contributed greatly as well. Because my mother was a model. She, that's how she got to the United States of America. She won a modeling competition in Trinidad and Tobago and they sent her here to compete. While she was here, she met my father, they had me. And so my mother continued modeling, but she would have me model too. I was this big. I was like a foot and a half tall, but I was out there modeling too. And, you know, Man. that just kind of acclimates you to the stage and the, you know. 
I feel like th this is great, man. I feel like this is like the hustler's edition. You know what I'm saying? Just like, <laughs> <laughs> like just free game on figuring out how to pivot and make transitions and, and, and go after what you want to accomplish. Um, how did you make the pivot from music to TV? Well, you know, it's weird. Or, people or music to film. From music to film. Well, you know, that's okay. So let me go back. So I always did music. And then coming out of high school, not being clear on what I wanted, I joined the Marine Corps. And I, the reason I bring that up is because I know what a lot of people think of the military today. I believe there's good reason to justify your skepticism. Um, you know, we become more educated on who actually mobilizes our military. But I will say that being in the Marine Corps boot camp uh, really helped give me this milestone in which I could ref refer a time that I had achieved or accomplished an amazing task where boot camp was so physically challenging and so psychologically challenging. And I think that that helped inform me moving forward. So I came from a fairly dysfunctional family. My parents were really young when they had me. And so that, though I had determination and, 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 and drive, I didn't have direction. I didn't have the ability to truthfully focus and organize. And I feel like some of that was developed in Marine Corps boot camp. Um, that reckless abandon was developed in Marine Corps boot camp. And so that put me into the music industry. And I quickly learned from the music industry that I was probably not going to do well there. Uh, it was making a huge transition into more of a gangster sound uh, and gangster stories. And it just wasn't me. And I didn't feel happy when I toured. Uh, it, it, it always felt like a lot of dissing. The ciphers felt very negative. And I was just kind of like, ah, I kind of think I'm done. And by that time, I had already started making jingles. And jingles were paying me more than rap was. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of helped cushion me. And then I finally just be begged to get out of my record deal. They let me out. Now, how did you end up in jingles? Because I feel like every 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 uh, question introduces a new field <laughs> that you that you were in. How did you do? How did that happen? My boy, my boy Nitro was producing jingles and producing music, and um, me and him had partnered up and started producing beats for like CC Peniston and stuff like that. We had we had produced CC Peniston, and and uh, he was doing it. He was he's originally from Brooklyn. Um, but he had a partner in Connecticut. He did the music. She had the connects. And then I came into the picture because he was like, yo, Romney will do all the raps on these things. And Romney will do this and Romney do that. And he put me on. And we started doing, we started having a blast making jingles. And the clients started requesting me, honey, you can go online right now and find Romney Malcolm in the Honeycomb commercial, whatever, you know, Shack Attack commercials, all those things. Because the clients started requesting me, like, can we get Romney? You know, I think it was more about the energy than the skill uh, as far as my mm -hmm. participation goes. And then um, one thing led to the next. And the next thing you know, I bought him a deal where we were producing. Uh, we were producing. Uh, I bought him, you know, artists that we produced. And that was it. And then. But, but by that time, I was kind of done with, 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 with hip, with, with, with being a rapper. Felt like I had outgrown it. I didn't want to be in that circle of negativity and scrutiny. And don't get me wrong, I like healthy competition. I don't like putting people right. down. I don't like chopping people down. I don't like critiquing people. And at the time, there was a lot of that in the game. And then the whole negativity of like, you know, killing brothers and all of that and the gangster thing, I was like, that's some people's reality. And even though I grew up in the street, that ain't me. Right, right. How did any of these folks that you met along the way, um, you know, like in music, um, for example, help like cheerlead for you or, or kind of introduce you to the transition to film? Or was it always like just a pivot that you that you figured out how to make happen? You know, kind of. Um, 
After I did that, I started my first internet company. After I did rap and jingles, I started an internet company. And at the time, it was considerably successful for me. Within like, I don't know, man, within three months, I think I was making like $3,000 a month. And within a few months of that, I was making $250,000 a month in 1996, 97. So that was a big wow. deal. That was a big deal for me. And so I thought that I would never be involved in entertainment again. And I actually got a phone call uh, from a guy named Andrew Stephanopoulos, who worked at Virgin Records when I first signed there in 1989. And uh, Andrew was now working with John Leguizamo. And Andrew and John Leguizamo was doing a movie called The Pest. And he said that he wanted to rap like the animated cat for Paul Abdul. Well, coincidentally, when I was working on at Virgin Records, I had written all that stuff for that animated cat. I'd written a bunch of stuff for the animated cat, right? And that's what he heard and wanted to do that. So he literally reached out to me, linked me in John Leguizamo, and John Leguizamo's wife, her name is Yelba, she was like, John, you hang out with comedians all day. Romney is funny as hell. What? Why can't he be in your movie? And so uh, he asked me to audition and I auditioned and I auditioned and they called me back and they called me back like six times. But then there's this thing called the mix match session where you kind of uh, go off script a little bit. You swap. And I didn't have that experience. So I failed at that. And so as a result of that, I didn't get the job. But the casting agent went and told everybody that I was her favorite audition of all time. And so pilot season came around and Hollywood just started calling my house. It was like almost a year later. And people, huh. Hollywood started calling, uh, we want you to audition for this. And I didn't even have an agent. And a bunch of agents started, and when I told them that I didn't have an agent, they started calling agents and telling the agents about me. The agents started calling my house. And I ended up signing with a lady named Lisa DeSanto. And uh, DeSante, Lisa DeSante. And it just because she just seemed to be the most genuine. Right. And um, that led to uh, that led to me becoming, you know, uh, an actor. That's crazy, man. That's, that's <laughs> it's crazy. That's crazy. Telling it to you, I'm like, this is going on too long. <laughs> not, not I, I love I love for folks to hear this because like what it's the it's the biggest question that you get. Like, yo, how do you how did you like so folks be like, yo, how did you get into TV? I was like, let me tell you about this 16 year period, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from from uh, 1999 to 2015. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll run you th through it and, and none of it's going to be linear, you know, yeah. um, but you got to keep your eyes on the opportunities when they open, when they reveal themselves. And then you got to also uh, just keep doing you. You know, like that's that's the key, man. Um, so, all right. So I'm assuming that kind of led to 40 year old virgin. Um, kind of um, a friend of mine named Jesse Peretz, who I had made during the period of making commercials. That was my first in introduction to any money on camera was commercials. Well, he was an independent filmmaker and he had made a, an independent film, which I loved but it got no response, made no money. And um, he was in the process of making another independent film. And he was like, dude, it's gonna be an improv film. I just need you to help me. And I wasn't even in the film industry really. And he was like, I need you to help me audition people uh, for this. And you're, you're like one of the funniest, wittiest people I know, man, just come help me. In, you know, I was like, cool. So literally I was on the camera side. Like I was standing behind the, him holding the camera while he auditioned all these famous people that I had seen in Party of Five or had seen in like in like these funny ass uh, uh, Holiday Inn commercials. And then that's how I met Paul Rudd because he auditioned Paul Rudd as well. And dude, I, after after Paul Rudd, he asked me, he said, who was your favorite? And I was like, no one comes close to Paul Rudd. No, th there's nothing energetically like that on the planet. And he was like, okay, cool. So he uh, went back to his producers and showed them the tapes. 
and then came to me and said, my producers wanted to know if you would be willing to play Paul Rudd's brother in this film. And I was like, oh, nah, no, 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 I ain't gonna do that. Because this was my boy. And I know for a fact that I wasn't no actor. And so I didn't want to be the reason that he made another film that didn't succeed. You know how it is, you get a couple that don't happen and then you're all of a sudden in director jail. So I was like, nah, bruh, uh-uh. You want to get somebody else to do that and literally had to be like seriously persuaded into, into accepting that role. But that role of improving like that ended up becoming something that Judd Apatow saw. And that's how we called me in for 40 year old virgin. And this is, and this is you just you being Romney, like seeing the world through your eyes and, 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 and giving the funny the way you see it working, like without having gone to, you know, a, a Meisner study class or, you know, anything like that. It's just all, all just natural. hundred percent at the time. Yes. At, at the time. I, I, after, after that, I was like, oh, I got to take classes. I got to learn the technical stuff, you know, but right. um, yeah, definitely. I, I, I was just winging it because I didn't know how serious the film industry was at the time. I was making commercials and making good money and right. and, and had a woman who was saying like, you know, uh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to make you famous, but take that stuff seriously. Um, yeah. I was born in 1968. You know what I'm saying? Just. The playing field is different. I was yeah. conditioned to believe the playing field was different for brothers, you know? Right, right. You know, there's something to say about, um, and this gets into a, a little bit more of a spiritual place, but like there's something to say about positivity and and perspective like emanating out and creating opportunities that you might not have expected as a return for the energy you're giving out. I, I don't even know if I'm making sense with that, but like, you know, I feel like if you, it's like when people tell you smile when you're on the phone because the person on the other end can feel it. And it's a true thing. Like if you're just moving through in a positive light, people are like, man, get that guy who don't do this <laughs> to come do this. Um, which is which is dope. Story of my life. I feel like I get included in a lot of things because I, you know, I don't know how it is for other people, but I've just seen a lot of shit in my life. And so I've developed or try to keep a very positive attitude because it's it works for me. It makes me happy personally. But it also right. does. It has it's opened a lot of doors. You know, it's opened a lot of doors. It's afforded me a lot of... One of my favorite Rumi quotes is that the quote is something to the effect of like, your job is not to find love, but it is to find all the barriers you have built against it. The barriers yeah. within you that you've built against it. That's a big deal. And so, right. you know, in order to survive in some of the places that I've lived, even to just kind of survive some of the, the heartache and disappointment that you experience within your family, um, racism in this country, uh, I could have either you could either let that stuff kind of steer your perspective or you can create your own and I was blessed enough to be able to create my own and also have the gift of having family from another country so going to school in Trinidad and going to school in the United States living in Trinidad living in the United States I was blessed with the opportunity to, with the perspective of looking at the United States from the outside in rather than from mm. the inside out and being able to see it objectively. And I look at the United States as a great tool. It's a great tool with great resources, but I don't, I don't really drink the Kool-Aid. Mm. That's, that's, that's so true, man. And you, it allows you to have a, a, a kind of unfiltered perspective when you look at it. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think about a lot of times, you know, cause I knew a lot of like West Indian cats growing up and their parents came at, you know, as, as young men, you know, let's say their fathers came at, as young men. And it's, there's a different kind of vibe when you haven't hit the glass ceiling from one day old. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And, like, and you come over here and you're like, oh, like this is a land of opportunity. And 
there's still all kinds of things that are that are fucked up, but you haven't like had like certain like institutional things just held over you for your entire you know life. Um, and I think about too, like you know when I grew up, I had my mom's family in Virginia, my father's in Birmingham, so like I'm I'm from New Jersey, New York, like going and seeing that for two weeks a year, dog, like that shit's crazy, you know what I mean? But like. I think now, like, my kids won't, they'll have California, you know what I mean? And, and, but, and there's something so valuable about, like, seeing, like, man, I got family that got a whole nother perspective on this, on, on life than I do. Um, and, and the opportunities are drastically different as well. Um, so 2011, that's when you kind of first brought Tijuana Jackson uh, to life? Well, I started doing it in 99. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. man. But- this is a journey, then. This is a dope journey, man. I love this. Thank you. Yeah, I started doing it in 99. I, I had a little camera, camcorder, that I would carry around in my car, and I would record myself as this character and play it for my friends on, you know, uh, you know, on my television. That was it. That was it. Huh. And then I want to say around 2007, I might have started uploading to MySpace or something. <laughs> was it MySpace? And then eventually someone was like, you got to put this on YouTube. And then like 2011, I think, is when the YouTube thing happened. And then the channel just started going. And uh, the New York Times did a full page write-up. And all these celebrities started quoting them. Rappers started quoting them. And I was like... So that... And, and, and was that was that the... Uh... Was that the first time that you kind of wore multiple hats? As characters? Um, well, yeah, because well, well, in 2011, right, did you did you write, direct, edit, shoot that as well? Or did you have a, a kind of yeah. other, uh, team around you? I like that you considered those. Yeah, I wrote, directed, edited everything. It was all me. And so, yeah. you know, I just, it's funny. I didn't even put it in, in that category because it was for YouTube. But yeah, I did all of that, bro. I even tried to shoot a movie back then. Came to Florida, got my homies together, tried to shoot a movie then. And uh, realized that it was going to take a hell of a lot more organization than I had. And so... How, How much of you is in this character? Because I feel like you talk about this, you know, like maintaining a positive ass uh, outlook um, despite whatever the circumstances might be. And that makes me question like how much of you have you kind of transferred to Tijuana? I think a lot of me is in Tijuana. I think that what, you know, like if what I noticed growing up, right? So I I was the dude that let's say that I was in a rap group where I had a group of friends. One of their brothers got out of prison, just got out. Nobody would want to mess with dude. They'd be like, oh, he kind of crazy. Family even would kind of cut him off, treat him like a derelict, you know what I'm saying? And I just didn't have the heart to cut him off, so then I'd end up kicking it with him. I'd end up giving him a ride to his girls or going on a double date that I had no business being on. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And then I got to hear and learn a perspective from brothers like that that was very different from mine. And so what you're usually hearing is, you're hearing a lot of me, you're hearing the, the version of me that is burdened with optimism, and then you're hearing the version of like, Big E and dudes that I know that got out the joint that are, you know, a bit more pessimistic in their outlook. They've had that glass ceiling you were talking about from from birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have developed, they've become so institutionalized and completely unaware that the advice that they're giving and the perspective that they're sharing, they're, they're just preaching what they most need to learn. And so, right. I, I, you know, I, I look at them as like some of the best, worst advice you'd ever gotten in your life came from the hood, you know. And so I just kind of made a fusion of, it, of, of, of both where I'm like, if I, I, I love that, that, that middle ground of like intellectually getting it, but struggling to put it into practice. Mm. That's a lot of us. And so the goal was to figure out a way 
to stay right there because it's the most ironic and right. irony is just entertaining as hell. Well, I mean, what the, the biggest section in any bookstore is the self-help books, you know, <laughs> and, and, and most people buy them, thumb through it and be like, never going to do that. <laughs> Which I think ties into something you were saying earlier when people were like, you know, when you were making the point about people like, how did you get into TV? And you go, let me tell you about these 16 year journey. I think that one of the biggest setbacks for anybody aspiring to do anything uh, in, in the film industry or just <clears throat> accomplish major things is that I think that most of us don't have a long-term vision. I think, you know, and I think so as a result of that, we, we create a lot of that long journey. We end up cre creating a lot of narratives to convince ourselves that we're being singled out or that we're being treated unfairly or that, uh, you know, the cards are stacked against you. And if you simply were able to understand that it was going to be a marathon, I think it would be a hell of a lot easier for people to deal with the challenges that occur over those 16 years rather than get discouraged after 16 weeks. Oof. Man, that's real shit, you know? And and I and and because, you know, look, like I remember this is it's kind of trivial, but I remember growing up, man, like when we would get Chinese food as a treat on Friday and want to eat it on Saturday, we ain't had no microwave. You had to recook that shit. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> and 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 everything now is like you hit a button and it's like presto changeo and people just don't there's it's a it's a microwave it's a microwave uh world not a um not a farming world right and i think what when you mentioned like what you learned as a marine man that's real too because i i started like I, I was doing push-ups at in sixth grade and I was just like man this there's like if I do if I do x x amount of time it yields you know right z right um and so it's just a matter of uh going through the deliberate action knowing that it pays off on a long enough timeline and then in these creative endeavors the challenge is that you know like I say all the time like if if what we did creatively was like basketball, right? Where like I put up 20 points a night and 10 rebounds. I could do that at Essex County College in Newark, New Jersey, Division 9, and I would get drafted. Right. But when you're making films that people like it might the audience the, the power brokers might not look like you and might not find value in your voice and what you're putting out in the world, you're just going to it might take you 16 years. Mike. You know? Yep. Um, and, and you know, you said something that was really interesting. Uh, you would, uh, It's all actually interesting, but you sparked a thought when you said, uh, ah, I forgot, it'll come back to me. But um, just to piggyback on what you said, it's like this constant, everybody has some kind of equation in their head of what it's going to take for them to achieve whatever they're going, they're aspiring to, right? So this begets right. this begets this, right? So it's this plus this equals this. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that immigrants have a higher chance of succeeding in the United States, because the orientation is very different. So our indoctrination, part of that glass ceiling is introduced to us through the screens and through television um, in the sense that you might see a family and that family in the TV show sits down together in the morning and everybody eats cereal. Well, subconsciously, we're being programmed to believe that that's what we should do. We don't know this, but it seems right. more normal. But living in Trinidad and Tobago, at least in my house, that was fucking ridiculous. Like, who the fuck? Who the fuck would sit down and feed their children a box of sugar in the morning? Like, in their right mind. With, you know, and again, it's just living in the United States. It actually became the norm in our household. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. It's the indoctrination. It's like this subconscious uh, programming. And so I think that all the same applies in the way in which success is achieved. And back to why I think 
not I think, back to why studies show immigrants have a 67% higher chance of succeeding in the United States. It's one of those reasons is that that orientation is different. They don't have the same indoctrination. Mm -hmm. So their equation of what begets what is very different from, mm -hmm. from someone who grew up, like you said, in the microwave you know, uh, right. era. Um, and then the other part of it is also that they believe in community. So when my Trinidadian family came here, they found Trinidadian community. And then my godfather who just passed, again, my family helped his Trinidadian family get put on and so forth mm -hmm. and so on. And actually my godfather went on to be a correctional officer, right? a corrections officer. And so my, my point basically being is that to what you're saying is that part of the reason we don't honor community is because we don't really understand the, we don't have the long-term investment. We don't have that mentality. But you know for a fact that the rappers that you love, the rappers that you idolize, the rappers that you quote, they are speaking on behalf of their community. The ones mm -hmm. that break aren't coming out imitating what's on the radio. You know, at least in my era, it was like this dude was making songs with an accent, and with a voice and with stories that came from where he came from. And I was like, damn, that's interesting. And then this right. dude, and then, you know, and then NWA was doing what NWA do. You know, Public Enemy was doing what Public Enemy do and so forth and so on. And the problem with not having a community is that it's very difficult to have, uh, to have a distinguished voice. Mm. That's super, I mean, I, I'm, I'm 100 with that. Yeah. And I think that that's where a lot of us fall short, but we don't understand that community is part of that long-term game. But if you don't right. have any type of allegiance or understanding of what long-term is, then community doesn't seem to play a role, doesn't seem to hold as much uh, weight, doesn't seem to be as important. Does, does the film uh, speak to that in any way thematically? That's what that film is about, bro. That's what it's about. That's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Dude, Tijuana Jackson, if you don't know what we're talking about, my name is Romney Malco. I'm a director, writer, actor. Um, I created a film called Tijuana Jackson, Purpose Over Prison. It's about an ex-convict who gets out of prison and wants to be a motivational speaker. And uh, he's got these lofty dreams, but the stipulations of his parole says he got to get a nine to five and show a check stub weekly or go back to jail. And so him... Regina Hall plays this probation officer who's trying to enforce these rules, and this character is trying to find a way to get around the system so that he can pursue bigger dreams for himself. He's got a bigger vision. He ain't trying to mess with this glass ceiling that the that the system has put in place for him. And so by, when this airs, we're going to drop this two days before the film comes out. So uh, how how should folks find it? Um, you know, what's the what's the best way to get their hands on it. I know they can, uh, I'll, I'll be promoting beforehand, but I just want to give it to them from you directly. Yeah, well, look, you'll be able to get this film on iTunes, Apple TV, Vudu, Fandango, Amazon, uh, Google Play. <laughs> Is it anywhere that there's a video on demand, you'll be able to find this movie. This is Robbie Rashid creator of Atypical. Hi, this is Mary Rolick. I'm a producer. You're listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is Pete Chapman's upcoming book about his journey as a director. What started in 1993 has been a marathon full of persistence and creative pivots. Transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school to running a production company, directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book will be for any person eyeing a successful career in a creative art. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is coming soon. Now, it's interesting, man, and, and for folks listening too, I feel like everything about this conversation is, is probably poured into this film, Tijuana Jackson, Purpose Over Prison. I feel like... I can't wait. I, I saw the trailer back in November of last year when we were doing a million little things. Right. And literally, I was like, "Oh, that he gonna he gonna work that out. That's going that's gonna land somewhere." I hope so. Because uh, it was a it was just a private private Vimeo link. Yes. And I know. 
um, I know that journey, man, because I, I made two indie features before. Um, so I, I, I commend you on that. Um, you know, the, the, the question I have is when you go from having worn so many hats, having been a multi-hyphenate, um, is that challenging um, on a show like, you know, now in the A Million Little Things world where um, you have to kind of take all the hats off and just be Romney bringing Rome to life. Do you ever find that challenging? When I was younger, probably. But today, no, because I actually am grateful. You know, one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest setbacks is like I grew up in the hood where like dudes could play basketball like on, on a pro level. But the same dude that could play basketball on a pro level was brilliant. Like, could sleep through a whole class and get straight A's, right? Mm. The same dude that could do that was an amazing football player, right? And that same dude, when he sang, everybody just kind of surrendered. And the problem was is that that dude ended up not really going anywhere. And the reason was because you're so good at so many things, the minute something got challenging, you switch to the next. And so I kind of suffered from that, where I could I succeeded at the, all these different things to a degree, but in every aspect of those things, and in every one of those things, I've hit that glass ceiling. I've gotten to a point of hitting the glass ceiling and then easily just flow to the next thing, no problem, and then experience some mediocre success there and then hit the glass ceiling. And acting was the first time where I said, oh, I'm completely conscious of the fact that I'm hitting a glass ceiling that's based, it's clearly, I'm the common denominator. These are my own limitations. No matter what I do, I'm going to carry these limitations with me. I'm going to stick this out this time. And it has seemed to have paid off. Uh, one of those limitations was the fact that I needed to do everything myself. Right? I didn't know how to incorporate a team into the fold. Mm. And as a result of that, it was, I limited, I limited me. I limited my abilities. Now, when I see myself on set as just an actor, and all I have to do is worry about acting, I have an empathy for the director, I have an empathy for the DP, I have an empathy for the grips, I have an empathy for the producers, but at the same time, it's a relief to not have to wear yeah. all those hats. It's a relief to feel like I'm on a team. It's a relief. And I think that part of the reason I needed to do everything myself was partly is because I needed to be in control. The fear of not being control. There was a fear that by not being in control, I would somehow end up failed or hurt. Right? Mm. So getting over that fear definitely helps. But also, now that I understand how much work it actually takes, I love just going to set, doing that, and then going home and working on my next project. If I were wearing right. all those hats, there'd be no time to do those other projects. Right. No, that's true, man. Has it, what's been, um, I got, I got two, I got two questions. I'm going to kind of step back for, for the first one from the direction of, of Tijuana Jackson. What was like a moment where you said as an actor who's been directed, right? Where you said, I, that, I, I, I killed that moment. I, I directed that moment. That was dope. Like whether it was a note you gave or, um, a performance you elicited, as the actor directing the other actor in a way? You know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, yeah. What, does anything pop to mind? Yeah, man. Right away. So I, there's this young lady named Shannon Dang who hadn't really gotten her break at the time. Um, she's She had been taking uh, training with Leslie Kahn. So Leslie Kahn kind of teaches you more... Uh, of a system for acting more so than teaching you from the gut. Um, mm. And so I understood her technique because I had taken training for the gut, but I'd also taken Leslie Kahn's training as well. And so we were on set and we were doing a scene and uh, dude, all I know is I looked to her in the scene and I said, I need you to take me personally. I need you to take this personally. And it's a scene when they're in the bedroom. She showed up to do a 10-minute documentary. And 
her character was saying, thank you, we got everything that we need, we just need these waivers signed. And TJ's like, wait, you gonna, you gonna end it, it right in the middle of the cliffhanger? You don't want to like, you don't want to see a nigga go from baboon to tycoon? And she was like, well, we have everything that we need. And so he kind of implies that, oh, wow, college has really conditioned you. You're sitting here with this great opportunity in front of you, and all you can think about is your 10-minute assignment. Mm. And they get into this debate about why is it that this dude, fresh out of prison, can see a brighter future for you than you can see for yourself. And you're supposed to be the educated one. And man, the way that I'm just keeping it real, I don't necessarily always want to be on camera while I'm directing, but the mm -hmm. fact that me and her could stand there and whisper to one another, like, you know, in the way that we did, and I could give her notes without having to get up and come from around the camera and talk to her, we're just doing it right there. Man, we captured magic. It's one yeah. of those moments in this movie where people kind of get a little emotional. We captured magic. And then there was another time when we first did our first family's table scene, Tammy Roman, Akoya Brunson, Bajalin, and myself, and we ran it, and it was the, early in the shoot, and everyone was kind of like, for lack of a better term, just kind of like shucking and jiving. Ah, what you doing? Right. And I just, I, we ran it, and then we stopped, and everybody looked at me, and I was like, listen, y'all, I need to believe these characters. I don't want to believe that you acted this scene great. I want to believe that you took, you take these problems home. Mm. This isn't really, I was explaining to them, it isn't really a, it's not a film, it's, it, it's, it, it's a documentary. It's supposed to feel like a documentary. We're making a mockumentary, but you know. And I know that it says that it's funny, but the funny is in the irony. The funny is not mm. in us trying to nail one-liners. Yo, that, that cast, and I can't even take credit for this, that cast flipped the script. The next take, people were crying. The mm. next take, people were in tears. And I just remember the whole crew looking at me after the first take with all the over-the-top broad comedy, everybody doing that. And every, I just remember them, everybody just being quiet. And I knew that they were probably thinking the same thing I was thinking. But that following take after the notes were given, oh, my God. Man, unreal. You, when you see it, you'll know it. I'm a, I'm gonna hit you up after I watch that too. I, th that's a beautiful thing, though, man. Because like you know, like that. That's why you had to direct it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because it's the preservation of the integrity of the moments that you know. Sometimes you you got to turn the dial and you got to know exactly what you're turning it toward. Which is, obviously you knew because you, you were behind it. Um, I also want to just, uh, I don't know if we if we had a conversation after it, man, but I just wanted to uh, shout you out and commend you on that scene in episode 212 of A Million Little Things that we did where we had the, um, you had the inclination that Rome shouldn't sit when scripted. Right. And it was really like after all of these kind of shorts that he's been taking, from um, Jerry Ferrara's character, and he's trying to like you know make a movie about his life, and ha and it's being stolen from him, and preserving the beat of taking a seat allowed Rome to maintain power while also maintain tension while also maintain what the fuck is gonna happen. Yes, <laughs> and yes. it was such a like. You know, I mean, it became a, a conference call. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But, but like, um, I, man, I, I, I am glad that you, like, were, went to bat for that moment. And then I, I joined with you on that, man, because I think that that was the way that the, the scene needed to play. Thank you. Thank, kudos to you for doubling down on that. Um, because, you know, the director's... It's like a revolving door. We've got all these different directors coming in. And it's easy to come into a situation like that and feel as though, you know, taking a stance could create unnecessary conflict or, 
you know. Mm. And so it was nice to be standing there with a black director and the mm. two of us asking. We weren't being confrontational. We were just asking. So this, let's be real. We're looking at this Caucasian writer, female, telling us, well, if you were standing up, I would feel intimidated. And to be able to be like, you probably feel intimidated right now. Right. Of course you would. But if you were a black man that had been through everything that that black man had been through to get to where he is, would you be intimidated? Especially if they did, in the discourse it was mentioned that they were college buddies, would you? She couldn't answer the question. And to have you right. there reaffirm that and communicate it in a much more calm, you keep a more zen, I get a little worked up. You keep a little, you know, <laughs> you kept it nice and zen, but nice and firm. It was, it was a good feeling. It was a good feeling. And it opened up that, by the way, that scene was the byproduct of a previous conversation that had occurred where mm. I was overheard by a, a production manager. She heard me say that I was collecting a check. Mm. And she was like, what? And I was like, look. I'm not even ashamed to say it. When I the reason I don't do network television is because there's usually no representation in the room. And when there's no representation in the room, just a matter of time before my black character takes on the sensibility of a 55-year-old soccer mom. And I was like, yeah. there's no denying that since the show started to now, that's exactly what has happened with Rome. So... I'm just collecting a check. There's no way someone's going to look at a black man playing a 55-year-old soccer mom and go, I want to hire that guy for something. You know, mm -hmm. other than the fact that he gets it. He understands, you know, the, 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 he, the shorthand of working on a set, the professionalism. So I might get hired for that, but there's nothing about this character that stands out. There ain't no awards to be won for this. And she was like, Romney, that's because of the fact that we don't have any black writers in the room and we don't have enough women in the room. And we need to have that discussion. And I kid you not, she had the showrunner, me, and her, on the phone at 9 a.m. the next mm. morning. And it was a Saturday. It was a Sunday because we were working on a Saturday. And we ended up talking for like an hour. And the showrunner was like, we dropped the ball. And so they were like, we're going to make this right. And that scene that you were directing was the beginning of them trying to find black writers, and, mm -hmm. and be more mindful. They're like, we dropped the ball. We're sorry. And then, you know, they didn't come with the, oh, well, we have a lot of characters. It's an ensemble cast. They were like, we dropped the ball. And I'm like, it always happens, bro. It's part of the system. And right. so um, we just do, I, I explained to them that we just don't understand how we're contributing to the system. Right. Well, I mean, that's, that's dope that you did that um the honesty of that um is important you know for other actors out there you know it's a it's a tough thing because um you know it, it's it i was able to with your with i was more in support of you and 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 because you have the the um the the place in that family to really have that heard I've done that on some shows and they're kind of like, uh, how about you figure out what our, what the coverage is, you know, <laughs> you know? And so, um, I, man, that was, that was dope. I was really happy about that. And then I was also, um, happy about the final moment of, uh, man, when, when he calls BJ back up and, um, Oh no, BJ calls calls Rome, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember uh, people their character name. I remember their their real name, um, but it was like, man, I think that the fact that he's got no money, there's no shame in it. It's like I got my movie back. We about to go kill this shit. Like, are you in or not? And uh, yeah, man, it was nice to kind of work with you on that. So I wanted to make that known. I, I got to jump in again. Then so we shot that scene. I think like two, three nights after we had shot the confrontational scene. Right. That night, after we shot the, the phone call from BJ, that writer, her name's Ashley, she comes up to me and she goes, I just want to tell you that you are absolutely right uh, in your choice about where Rome should sit down. And it plays exactly as you said it would. And I just want to thank you because you actually make 
everything better. You make everything better. Thank you. That was very rewarding, and it felt amazing. And I yeah, never man. got I never got to share that with you, bro, because you and me fought that battle together. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that was dope, man. I I. I I'm looking forward to season three. However, y'all figure out how to shoot that joint. <laughs> uh, they're kind of, they're kind of, they're kind of blazing the, the trail for how Hollywood will now continue to shoot uh, uh, TV and episodics. Mm. Um, believe it or not, uh, there's a woman named Nina who is our production manager. She runs our, who's actually laying out the blueprint for how Hollywood will move forward, and she's on our team. Dope. Straight up. Yeah, man. I love it, man. Um, well, here we're turning the corner. Um, I got, uh, I, like, I like to ask this question before I hit you with the lightning round. Um, if you had the keys to the castle and could change anything about the business, whether it's specific to acting or any, any of the hats that you wear, um, what might that be? Okay, there's no short answer to that, but yeah, it, yeah. it would be the messaging. It would be the messaging, like I explained earlier, is that there's this uh, ongoing uh, 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 relaying of how people are portrayed. I was looking back, I, I, I looking back at some of my favorite movies, even with like, I remember when, remember when Robin Williams played a little kid. What was the name of that movie? Um, oh, Jack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when the so-called gnarly kids came around, they were all black and brown. You know, the messaging, like we're planting these, these seeds into people early in life to dehumanize communities and, 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 and people of color and like and women like we're just and, and, and sometimes even emasculating men. It's like it's there's just so men, much confusion um, in who we are as a people, and a big part of it has to do with the fact that the messaging, the things that are allowed, these discrepancies that have been allowed and people turn the other cheek or overlook because of lack of sensitivity or because of insensitivity, that, that, that would be, with the keys to the castle, that would be it for me. I would make sure that the things that we are making a norm, that we present as the norm, though detrimental to society, Mm-hmm. They wouldn't be as common in this business. You'd you'd have to flip the script on that, you know. Right. Um, right. And I think it's most important. I, I one of the reasons I want to make this movie is because I realize that this media is 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 a very powerful tool. And unfortunately, for most people in the United States of America, it is their higher education. And so I want to use it responsibly, and I want to use it to do good. That's beautiful, man. Um, lightning round. What are you binging in these quarantine times? You know, I haven't been binging. What we've been doing is me and my daughter have been going through all the like movies that I consider amazing and classic. Like, you have to see this, you have to see this, you have to see this. And the, and, and the range is crazy. It's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest all the way yeah. to City of God, Pulp Fiction, District 9. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, yo, we hopping around, yo. I'm like, you, I'm like, you want to see a black love story? Bam, you got to watch City of God. Yo, you want to, you know, it's like we all over the place. And so what we've been doing is we've been binging the classics. All right, that's dope. Um, what what three traits uh, do you think someone needs to have to make it in this industry? You cannot underestimate the amount of hard work that it actually takes. I think that. When people, one of the biggest mistakes people make in this business is that they underestimate the, uh, they underestimate how much work it'll take. And so when they start facing the challenges, the psychological challenges as well, they they get discouraged and quit. No, that's actually par for the course. So one would be don't underestimate how much hard work it takes. Two would be you really do need to learn your craft, hone in on your craft. You need to study, study, learn it. Because the beautiful thing about, even if it's just an acting class, as an actor, right? You're in an acting class. Every time you go up there and nail a scene, you might, you might be terrible the first six months of acting class. You go up there and nail a scene. You're building a confidence you can't build anywhere else. So now you have a confidence in the cold read, and the cold read can get you the job. Mm. And you have to give yourself the opportunity to exercise that muscle. And then the third thing, uh, which we already talked about, is that 
this this concept of like blowing up instantaneously. Yo, this shit ain't TikTok, fam. This ain't TikTok. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's gonna take a minute. True, true, true. And it ain't gonna be from a 10 second video. Um, or it, it might be, but you know, good luck with that. Exactly, um, exactly. The bottom line of this is, is the film industry. This is an industry. You have to make money. You have to show that you can monetize the content, period. And it's messed up to say that, but when it really boils down to it, if you're trying to make the bucks, you got to show that you can aid in the monetization of content. Bam. And the last uh, final question is, uh, who should be our next guest? Who should be your next guest? Yeah. Um, wow. A lot comes to mind, bruh. But um, let me think about this. Uh, I would be interested... Damn, I got a I got a few people on my mind here. Um, who do I want to go with? John Leguizamo, man. I, I, okay. I mean, he got me started in this business, and he's dope. He's oh my god! And before I met him, this is what's crazy. If you would come to my house before I ever met John Leguizamo, I would have had Spicarama or Mambo Mouth, two of his two of his <laughs> right. one hour playing in the background, and I would have. Paused our conversation from time to time to get you to listen to one of his jokes. Wait, 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 hold up. Check this out. Check that out. Turn up the TV, play that for you. Right. Then we go back to doing what we're doing and I turn that down. I swear to you. Yeah. Now he's dope. I used to see him walking around when I was working at NYU. I think he must have lived in the village and I would see him walking as I came off the path train uh, headed to, to uh, Washington Square Park. That, that boy is... That right there, that boy's a beast, yo. Yeah, yeah. He gets a lot of love in our house. <laughs> as he should, as he should, man. Well, I appreciate it, brother. Thank you for joining the pod. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and I cannot wait to watch the film. Everybody check out Tijuana Jackson, Purpose Over Prison. That's right, July 31st, it will make you laugh so hard, you're gonna be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Later, y'all. Hey, man, good talking to you, Pete. Likewise, brother. Appreciate you, Ronnie. Continue blessings. Yeah, man. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via let's shoot with pete chapman at gmail.com and just in case you need to know how to spell it that's pete with the last name c-h-a-t-m-o-n that was romany malco remember to go check out his film tijuana jackson purpose over prison in Theaters. I think it's in theaters now, but it's also going to be, uh, that's a one-week run for those of you uh, in select markets. But on Friday, July 31st, the film will be available uh, online for everybody. So go check that out. Um, join us next week as we welcome Keith Powell. Keith is probably uh, more known to folks as an actor uh, from 30 Rock, but this brother is a prolific writer, uh, director, quite the chef. Um, and we're gonna have an interesting conversation about this creative world uh, that we navigate where we try and wear as many hats as we can. So we'll continue in that conversation. Uh, I wanna thank my team that helped put this together. Uh, my producer, Tristan Nash, my assistant producer, Jada George, and of course, our announcer, Kelly McCreary. And uh, in the meantime, y'all stay safe, stay blessed, and spread love. <laughs>